go, we had started talking a little bit about rapture and pity. Right. Uh, I think that one of the traits of humanity, uh, and we can see that in the Western culture, the Western mind, uh, when we hear about Buddhism, we tend to assume that it's got some extraordinarily marvelous qualities to it. And I use that term extraordinarily marvelous as, uh, let us say, a twist on the word magical. Mm -hmm. That we kind of expect really, really highfalutin kinds of things. And I think that that's built into our culture that has a strong, a long, strong history of Christianity and gods and uh, spooks and devils and hells and heavens and all kinds of things that are really, really absolute. Um, hell is an absolutely bad place and heaven is an absolutely good place kind of mentality. And so we kind of live within these boundaries of extremes, that we go from one extreme to the other, uh, to where within the teachings of the Buddha, it really is much more of a middle path. But that, that middle path uh, is not um, a middle path that's the, the life of an ordinary person. Because the whole point of the life of the ordinary person is, is that on um, a regular basis, frequently, they wind up in dissatisfaction. The kind of a middle path that the Buddha is talking about is uh, that middle path that winds up in a state of satisfaction rather than going to the, to the extreme. So it's not kind of an ordinary place to begin mm -hmm. with. This middle path that the Buddha introduced in his first uh, sutta, the Dhamma Chakra Bhavanta Sutta, uh, that, that sutta talks about this is, this is the way he introduced what he, what he wanted to convey to his uh, old students and old companions who had left him when he when they saw him uh, abandoning their austerity program that they were on. He was practicing uh, uh, eating very little and got very thin. There's actually mm -hmm. statuary on of this, what they call the starving Buddha. Now, uh, for sure the guy is starving, but at that time uh, in his life, he was not yet awakened. He was still practicing right mm. but he was very good at it by having been born a prince he already kind of had the winner's mentality he had already been trained in how to uh in uh animal training horse training uh he had archery um uh when he left his home he took a horse and a groom with him they let the horse go, but the groom was one of these five that stayed with him uh, during that time, Chanda. So when he goes to talk about the, no, uh, the middle path, we have to understand the context because these guys had been with the Buddha all of this time since the time that he left. They stayed with him. Uh, a lot of people, uh, there's a story, I think, by Christopher, uh, no, uh, Christmas Humphreys that talks about him uh, sneaking out of the palace after uh, uh, permanently, after sneaking out one time and seeing uh, a sickness, old age, death, and a monk. Correct. Okay, that's not how it happened at all. We got better historical evidence and <laughs> historical evidence to have points that he, he said goodbye to his mom and dad. They knew all about it. They knew what was happening. They knew why he was going, and it had a lot to do with uh, Gautama getting into political trouble with his, uh, uh, let us say, the allies of his father, so over water rights. Mm -hmm. So when he, when he then gets this 
uh, Eightfold Noble Path going, he introduces it as the middle path or the middle way. And that middle path then is the middle path between the two extremes that they had all been practicing for the past six years. Mm-hmm. One was the austerities, but the other one uh, <clears throat> fell into disdain by the Buddha, which was these jhana practices uh, that so many Westerners think is actually part and parcel of the teaching of the Buddha, where in fact, um, even though the jhanas are talked about, we would think that nowadays we would see the jhanas as uh, a modern, uh, let us say, an ancient uh, <clears throat> enlightened person's internet for time structuring okay okay once you become completely enlightened what are you going to do with your time mm-hmm. okay if you're already in seclusion and sitting kind of in the woods what are you going to do with your time <laughs> i just go sit there and enjoy it right uh-huh. just enjoy yourself so these jhanas have the quality of a pleasant abiding, mm-hmm. but most of the people who were practicing that in the time of the Buddha and all were also practicing it nowadays are doing it from the perspective of it's the same need or the same want of sensual desire, except that now the sensual desire is completely manufactured by the mind. Mm-hmm. The pleasures of the jhana is is now, uh, let us say, the poor monk substitution of going to the brothel and getting drunk. Mm. Okay, that both the guy going to the brothel and getting drunk is looking for sensual pleasure. And so is uh, uh, the the jhana dudes if they're doing it uh, before. Uh, they fully understand the whole point of the, uh, so this is kind of, the jhanas are then a side trip. Mm-hmm. And that sometimes that side trip lasts for many, many years. You could say, in fact, that the Buddha wasted six years. He could have walked right out of the palace, right under the Bodhi tree, and sit down and try to figure out what was going on and never have put himself through that starvation and never having put himself through uh, those intense jhana experiences, except for one thing. By doing those things, he actually did develop skills that were then useful mm-hmm. for him. And so uh, this, here's, here's basically what happens is, is that once a student gets the first jhana, they immediately want to go into the second and the third and the fourth to where it's very clear <clears throat> in the suttas, that this first jhana needs to be uh, cultivated, practiced, and uh, put into service so that basically you can go into that state just by remembering to go into that state. Mm -hmm. That we want to develop the ability to go into it easily. And so when I hear students say, well, I had first jhana once or twice, that means that they really have not developed, that mm-hmm. it was almost kind of an, kind of an accident, that we mm-hmm. actually have to do things to develop going into the first jhana, and then develop the ability to stay in first jhana. Mm-hmm. These are the qualities that we're, that we're looking for is being able to. And so in that regard, if we are practicing a middle path uh, and we can go, let us say, into the higher jhanas, what would happen with the Buddha and with all of these guys who send, spend so much of their time just sitting? A very small group of people. But when they get up, and come out of the jhana, they go right back into the hindered mind. The mind will just start spinning again, just like it has. What we're here practicing is the ability that on an instant's notice, we can stop that stuff 
and come into a very pleasant state mm-hmm. to where these high jhanas, you can't function in the world in these high jhanas, that you can still walk around in second jhana, but you cannot walk in third jhana. You cannot drive a car in fourth jhana. You cannot read the newspapers in these higher jhanas. You just can't do it mm-hmm. because, uh, for one thing, uh, the thought process is shut down. In fact, think about it like this. If the police and the emergency uh, medical team found someone sitting uh, in New York City and that they had completely lost their ability to think. Now, maybe if their intention was to bring their thought process back, they could. But right now, they choose not to. They choose to stay in a a state where they can't think. No thinking allowed, you know, which is one of the conditions of second jhana. What Mm. do you think the EMT people are going to do with this guy? Rush him to the hospital? Precisely. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to take him to the hospital, lock him up or, or something. Um, so if we think about it like that, these higher jhanas are not functioning states. And if we're, uh, and if the guy rushes into these states, then when he comes out of them, there's only one way for one place for him to land. And that is back into his normal, normal mind state, Mm -hmm. which is a state of hindrances. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, the middle path, then, that the Buddha talks about is the middle path between these higher jhana states and the desire for uh, good feelings and sensuality and, and uh, greed. Basically, it's greed for states of mind or greed for things that we don't have. But the, uh, the practice of the first jhana is such that we can gain that joy just by remembering to have that joy, to bring that up uh, just at a certain level. And so this is the, the quality of, of learning to uh, develop that first jhana so that we begin to get quite good at going into it. Mm-hmm. And then develop it once we get into that state to sustain it and to maintain it. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff about that, sustaining it and maintaining it. In fact, that's one of the um, actual definitions of first jhana, is applied and sustained thought. What that means, applied and sustained thought, means that we can apply the mind, the thinking mind, the mind that, you know, that all the jhana dudes want to shut down, the thinking mind, instead of shutting it down, what we want to do instead is to completely manage it or completely control it. So in a way, imagine that it's like a horse. We don't want to kill the horse. We want to train the horse so that the horse is not wild mm-hmm. and can be put into, put into service. So that most humans have a mind that's like a wild horse. And about the only thing they know to do with the wildness is to kill it. (laughs) But there's no, there's other options that humans have come across. And that is uh, 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 to train the wild animal. And so this is what we're really lurking at is that the first jhana is more of a training of the mind so you can think the thoughts that you want to think Mm -hmm. rather than shutting the whole mechanism down, which then becomes not really useful, not for real life. Now, there's another quality of the first jhana that I didn't mention, and that's the quality of developing the skill of coming out of first jhana. Now, this is kind of crazy. Because everyone who touches first jhana fall right back out of it. It's easy to come out of first jhana if the only place you can go is back into hindrances. Mm-hmm. 
there's only there's only one other place to go with first jhana, and that's into second jhana if we're developing it as a skill. The skill of leaving first jhana is to go into second jhana, but by doing so, that means that when we come out of second jhana, that we come back into first jhana rather than falling out of it altogether. Mm-hmm. This, this, when you get this concept that we're going to develop this first jhana because the first jhana is the goal, is to be able to get into it and maintain it, that people can walk and talk and read books and feel uh, generally quite wonderful while they're in first jhana. In second jhana, not so much. You can walk maybe, but that's about all you can do. Mm -hmm. You can't talk because talking takes thinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm just not quite sure if the state that I've been getting into the past few days and that I would say that I'm in right now is is first jhana or not. Um, I feel pretty good uh, <laughs> but you know that but you know it doesn't f- feel mm, let me uh, ask you this question this way yeah do you do you feel good enough <laughs> yes i do feel i feel very good okay yeah. all right so can you now uh, continue on with feeling really good that way? Yes, and and when uh, something crops up, I, I notice it like 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 that quick, and then mm-hmm. and, and uh, keep on keep on going. <laughs> okay, all right. <clears throat> that sounds to me like a marvelous way to live. Yeah, yeah. No, I've been feeling very good. Okay. All right. So um, the job then is to maintain that because the job of uh, or the skill of learning to maintain that allows that feeling then to deepen, uh, let us say, to seep down in deep Mm -hmm. so that the kind of decisions uh, that we used to have Let's call it rather than decisions, reactions, reactions to surprises, reactions to loud noises, reactions to getting yelled at, reactions to um, incoming, all of that kind of thing. These reactions have all we've already been training enough so that our reactionary qualities now begin to change. We automatically now have a reaction that's much more positive than in the old days. An example of that would be, this happened a couple of years ago, but it was so remarkable that I remember it, and now is a good time to bring it up. First off, we live on an island, and the island has some some pretty, um, let us say, intense weather from time to time, uh, including lightning storms. I don't know where this lightning bolt hit, but it was near this house. It was right here in the vicinity. Uh, And the reason for that was because I noticed out of the corner of the eye over here, that light, as well as all over on this end of it. I mean, the whole house literally lit up while basically at the same instant, no counting one, two, three, four, five, how far the lightning uh, thunder is from the lightning. It happened immediately. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was there for it. And what I noticed was is that Tam and Kitty and the both dogs were in the house and every one of them left the floor. <laughs> the dogs just jumped right up into mm-hmm. the air. And I was watching that. My My reaction was, to, to watch what's going on rather than to react to the noise and the light flash and, and all of that. It was such a surprise. So we have these startle reactions. Mm-hmm. And, and part of uh, being in the here now 
is, is that we don't have these startle reactions anymore. It's more of a wake-up reaction. That we don't get, uh, how to say it, we don't get bushwhacked by reality. Mm-hmm. The things don't happen uh, in a surprise. Things don't sneak around behind us and catch us by surprise. That we tend to have an, an openness that, that comes through uh, this constant development of the first jhana is always the constant development of being in the present moment the being in the senses. Uh, so I, one of the ways of, of describing it, I think, would be that when people are in, in the mind or when they're not paying attention and something uh, big and sudden happens, then it naturally touches right into uh, the startle reaction that is part of uh, the instinct the self-preservation instinct, that when something big like that happens, that people will take a short in-breath and, and, and kind of jump, you know, like, <gasps> all right. So um, we can actually practice a bit for not doing that. But basically is that when we're in the here now, when we're out of that... Um, uh, let us say, old thought process that's built into the um, uh, the instincts when we're not living in that space, then uh, we're, we're much more attuned with our environment, including the bodily sensation. The body awareness is there. So an example of what we're talking about is, is that monks learn to walk very, very quietly partly due to walking meditation and partly doing, uh, to do just to be mindful of, of walking. And so um, that was part of the training that Achan Po, I think I mentioned this to you, that he would sneak up behind me and, and whisper. Mm-hmm. All right. That put me on, on alert that I've, I've got to um, pay attention mm-hmm. because Achan Po is teaching a lesson that I'm not, I'm not there. When he said he comes up and says, ta-ta-ta, what that means basically is be here now. He knows I'm not here now because he was able to get up right behind me to say something. Mm. Okay, so let's wake up. Let's be a part of our environment and in that environment and paying attention to that environment more and more and more of the, of the time as we remember So um, this is actually been part of the development of the first jhana is that sati to keep remembering very often to come back, to come back, to come back, to come back. A second aspect then of it is right effort. In the beginning, uh, the effort is (laughs) sometimes there's even too much effort uh, in some point in time. But we have to have the right effort. That eff- when that effort, though, becomes fairly easy, that then is part of the skill of being able to uh, go right into first jhana. Mm-hmm. Also, the quality of remembering to breathe. That, uh, um, like this morning when I woke up, I recognized that within very, very short period of time that I was still taking long, deep breath, taking those long, deep breaths and, and to wake up knowing that, uh, that this breath is a long, deep breath. So this is the kind of quality that we begin to look at is the more often we're taking long, deep breaths, then the more healthy the body is going to be, the more uh, vibrantly alive Uh, the brain is going to function. And so continuing to remember to take those deep breaths is something that goes beyond just the sitting posture. That we want to keep the mind uh, sharp. 
and mm-hmm. taking these deep breaths is as uh, a major way of doing it and taking um the uh taking the effort to do it over and over and over again just like uh, when someone goes to the gym and first starts working out they can't do very many reps with a weight that's very uh lightweight but if they keep practicing keep coming back to the gym over and over and over again then they can increase the number of reps as well as increasing the weight mm-hmm. okay so we're thinking about both of those things kind of at the same time the lightning or uh, being in proximity of someone who walks close to us, whether we know it or not. That in fact, uh, I do that with with the family, that I can get close enough to Tam, if she's washing dishes or something and not paying attention, she can just look like this and my face is right here. (laughs) (laughs) What? And I've been playing that game with Kitty, and Kitty is really beginning to wake up. The, the game that I play with her is that if uh, is to be able to sneak up on her and take her cell phone away from her while she's holding it and watching. <laughs> and, and she used to get uh, a little pissed off at me, but I would give it always give it right back to her with a great big smile. But now. I can't get within 10 feet of her (laughs) (laughs) without her um, pointing out that she knows that I'm that I'm there. So this is a quality that I'm looking for uh, for Kitty uh, is to be aware of what's going on around her, to wake up, to be here now. This is literally um, uh, a big part of the practice. It's really hard to convey. When, when we are sitting on the floor um, in some sort of meditation retreat. But this is exactly the value of the Zen stick. This is exactly what the Zen stick is designed to teach, is when the, uh, the Zen master is in the room with that stick, every student uh, should be paying attention to the fact they know he's in the room. And they will adjust their posture just ever slightly. We sit up just a little bit when we know the guy's in the room. And the guy who gets hit is either going to be lost in um, jhana or he's going to be lost in thought. But he's not paying attention to what's going on here now. Okay, so this is part of the uh, the issue that is kind of uh, a difficulty with Western Buddhism is, is that they have the idea that the further one progresses, the deeper into meditation they go. And that's not true at all. The further one progresses, then the less likely it is for you to surprise him. Mm. That's a way of looking at it is, is that we're kind of ready for anything. And this is that state then of getting in ourselves into that state of first jhana that has these five qualities to it. And when we understand these five qualities, we'll recognize what a valuable state this is that anyone can get into with a little practice and anyone can learn to maintain this with proper practice. So the most important one is to be free from the hindrances. Being free from the hindrances is something like you're sick and you get uh, get well. This is one of the five analogies, okay? When we're sick, that means basically that we're tired, that we're low energy, et cetera, like this, which is a fairly good understanding of, of the hindrance of sloth and torpor. We feel tired. But if we're energized because we're breathing well, then that tiredness will go away. And so we don't feel so sick. When we're free from the hindrances, we don't feel sick and tired. When we're in hindrances, we feel sick and tired. Another one would be jail, uh, being in prison and getting out of jail. That in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa uses both of these analogies. He talks, talks about the spiritual disease and he also talks about the prison of life. <coughs> And being free from hindrances is like 
getting out of jail. <laughs> what jail are we in? The jail of the mind and also all of the concepts that box us in. The box itself is a conceptual box and we conceptualize it. When we're no longer in a state of conceptualization, the box kind of melts away. But there's some other deeper things and we'll get to that in a moment. The next idea of the hindrances is um, the idea of being a servant or like being employed. And you've got to take care of the king. You've got to get up before he does and get his breakfast ready. And you got to get, you know, you go to sleep after the king goes to sleep. And your, your whole day, basically, is taken up by doing something for someone else and getting very little or no reward for it. That's what most people in America, that's their job. They get up, they go to work, they make money, the boss gets it, they go home. And they don't get much value out of their work. It's almost like being in the woeful state of an animal, just doing what we were told to do. But being free from the hindrances is, is at least then being free from duty. Freedom from our, from our own box or freedom uh, of, the, of the prison also has a different kind of quality of being a servant. And now we're free from the servitude. That we don't have to do the things that we used to do. Now, this is the point about humans actually have developed themselves into problem-solving machines. Mm -hmm. Originally, they were nothing but pattern-matching machines. To be able to see movement, to see patterns, and things like that. But over uh, the time of the building of our society, we've become problem-solving machines. If you don't have a problem to solve, then that itself is a problem because we are problem-solving machines. So we go around looking for problems to solve. This is that state of being a servant. We are a servant to solving problems. Yeah, that's what was happening to me um, about a week ago where uh, I'd be feeling good and then the, the thought or feeling would arise um, like, is this it or like, this can't be it, so I, I need to try harder. Um, <laughs> And that was fucking miserable. So, so, so that's why I, I, I changed uh, my practice a bit to just notice when things end. And that just gets me really, like, really paying attention to things. Uh -huh. And uh, But you can see that those kind of thoughts are actually referred to as doubt. Yeah. Those are the questions that a doubting mind is asking which a doubting mind then is by definition hindered from actually right. feeling good. By yeah. asking yourself, is this feeling good enough? That's doubt. Yes, yeah. Rather than just enjoying, well, right now this is good enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, it was like working when I didn't need to be working. <laughs> exactly. That's what the hindrance um uh, that, that we do. That's, that's restlessness, basically. Yeah. Restlessness is doing things that when we don't need to do anything. We can also think it of as, as boredom. Um, the next analogy is, in fact, this, this one, the analogy that fits best is imagine yourself that you're a, um, a merchant with, with a camel full of goods or whatever, maybe a, a whole caravan. And you're out in the desert, sweating your way along. It's desert. There's sand pirates. There's uh, um, possible lack of water and starvation. And it's a drudgery, but you're trudging on. And now you get home. You've arrived at your home. The, uh, the camels are unpacked. And we sit down and we can relax. Mm -hmm. 
So this is another way of looking at it. We can think of, in fact, that when we're out in the desert and uh, in danger of being robbed and losing our goods um, is kind of like the state of doubt. I see that actually when, um, when I did go traveling. Now I'm not doing hardly any traveling at all, but back then I had to travel about once every three months. <laughs> And and that was to go to the visa um, uh, to do the 90-day check-in. Mm-hmm. So here I get on the boat with all of these tourists, big catamaran, 300, and the whole front end of the boat is loaded down with all the luggage. Watching these people get on the boat, they've got a backpack in front, a big backpack in the back, and now they're carrying a stroller full of big suitcase. Um along. When they travel that way, that means that they're always in danger of losing that luggage to thieves. And so they've got to keep their hands on it or their eyes on it, which means that you've got almost no freedom when you're out traveling, when you're so luggage bound. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I had learned many, many years ago is don't take any luggage with you. It is cheaper and easier to buy an extra shirt than it is to pack one if you need it and so wind up having uh one shirt on and one shirt in the bag one pants on and one in the bag one pair of shoes on nothing in the bag and now we're good to go you know and so that's a much better way of traveling because now you can keep track of it very easy so now we can put that back to the issue of the mind that we're out in the mind traveling around carrying a load of goods worrying about this and that and and all of that and so imagine now that you arrive home you remember oh i don't have to think about any of that stuff why be out there wondering with all of this baggage when i can sit down in my own mind and be at home be at rest be at peace and so when we recognize how valuable it is to be free from the hindrances this is a major, major change in one's life to be able to throw these hindrances out just by remembering to. And throwing these hindrances out is, is basically that key word that the Buddha used. Aha, I see you, Mara. Mm-hmm. Because that disassociates us from the hindrance. When we're in hindrance, we are the hindrance. When we wake up, we can see that we are not the hindrance The hindrance is just something that's in the mind and can be easily chased out. Mm -hmm. That I am not the hindrance, which can also be said in in more formal or let us say more um, common ways. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm pissed off. These are kinds of words that identify ourselves with these hindrances. Because, in fact, uh, not liking something or wanting to get rid of something is actually a mind of in hindrance. That's one of the five. Wanting things that we don't have, that's another hindrance. Is also the very definition of suffering itself. Mm-hmm. Wanting things we don't have. If we like something, why not just like it? When we want it, now we got trouble. And trying to uh, we have trouble because we don't like the feeling of not having it. So we want to get it. So now we're going to take all of that effort to go get it. Once we get it, now we have to keep it. Okay, so you can see how much trouble it is when we make a mistake of going from liking into wanting. Mm-hmm. So this is a point when Bhikkhu Buddhadasa says, let's make the mind fit for work. So that when we like something, we know that we like it and leave it there without it going into wanting. Because the wanting is part is the uh, the hindrance itself. But if we just like something, then we can appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like my she's a beautiful girl, but I don't want her. <laughs> oh, what a good job she did at painting her face. She must have ten dollars worth of makeup on right now. She's really gorgeous, <laughs> but I don't want her. <laughs> Okay, so this is the kind of way that we begin to understand uh, 
these hindrances, it's so marvelous to be free from them. This is why the uh, the first jhana is described the way that it is, that it's the rapture, uh, or let us say the pity and the sukha that arise born from the seclusion of these hindrances. When we come out of hindrances, it's like getting better uh, when you're sick. It's like getting out of jail when you've been locked up. It's like uh, quitting the job. Another one is, and the last one that I didn't talk about yet, was like being in debt, and then you pay the debt off. That, in fact, if we want something we don't have, that's actually like being in debt for it. And we have to take action to get it back. It's almost like that when, when we want something that we don't have, it's like it's in hock. And we got to go pay to get it out of hock. Mm-hmm. But if we only like it and we don't want it, then we got no problem. Okay, so here's where this stuff is then developed. This is a, a, an actual developmental process, a skill to be developed of coming out of the hindrances and coming into a state of satisfaction that's born from freedom from these hindrances. It's quite marvelous to not want anything. <laughs> it's, not, it's quite marvelous to be free from doubt. It's quite marvelous to um, uh, not have any duties. Mm-hmm. Just easy life, okay? In <laughs> fact, that's, that's part of what you're th- talking about, about going on a three-month retreat. You can, you're on a three-month retreat right now. I don't know the time duration, but here you are. <laughs> you don't need to go to Thailand and sit in the back of a temple to spot on the floor. <laughs> you can well, sit well, in your easy chair in your home and just enjoy the heck out of your life. I, I do. I do work, uh, but I, I and I do spend a lot of time sitting. <laughs> All right. So the last part, then we've already covered three of them. The number one and most important part is seclusion from the hindrances, which means basically that now we're able to control the mind through watching it so that we can think the kind of thoughts that we want to think. Mm -hmm. And when we catch ourselves thinking thoughts that we don't want to think, we can stop those thoughts, throw them out, and put something else in that we do want to think. This is what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa calls a mind that's fit for work. This is a mind that actually does require some, some good deep breathing on a regular basis to keep the mind working. Uh, a clear example in the business world that people will get tired in the afternoon. They get drowsy. Sometimes they're even sleeping at their desk. But if they would get up and go for a walk, Maybe just go get a drink of water, go to the bathroom or something. Then that activity will start their breathing up again. They can come back and they can work for another five or ten minutes before they get drowsy again. <laughs> but if they would remember to breathe, then they can stay um, fit for work much more of the time. And so meditators, when they're sitting there, it's quite natural then if they're not watching the breath to make sure that they're getting enough air, that they will in fact get drowsy. And then they will mistake their drowsy dream state for jhana, where in fact they're dreaming. They're not, (laughs) they're, they're tired and asleep and not woke up. So when we are awake then with this breathing, that makes the mind fit for work. And in the sutta, we talk about this quality of first jhana is the two features of applied and sustained thought. Now, this quality of sustained thought is very valuable, and I'll talk about it in a moment. But for the first point, applied thought means that we can apply the, the mind to that which we know is worthwhile applying it to. We can do this. This is what they call kusala. Now, uh, the word kusala, a kusala, have you ever heard those terms before? Generally, they mean no. wholesome and unwholesome. 
Kusala actually is a word for a grass that looks very similar to lemongrass, except that it doesn't have a lemon flavor, but it does have the quality that the leaves are very strong, very heavy, and they're serrated in the sense of little spikes come out on the side of the leaves, just like in every, in fact, any leaf you go out into in your yard, pick up that leaf and you will see that the edges of it have tiny little uh, knives sticking out. Tiny little serrations on it. Uh, It's very curious like that, that the leaf, uh, a grass leaf doesn't just leaf up like that, but on the sides of it, there's all kinds of tiny little projections on it. Okay, so they take this kusala grass and dry it out. They generally would put it under uh, a board or uh, a a rock or something like that to to get it flat, get it straight, and let it, uh, that pressure to dry it out. Now we've got a knife. The whole point about this kusala grass is that in the time of the Buddha, that was an easy way to make a knife. And you can't cut wood with it, but you can cut bread. You can cut all a cloth. You can call, you can uh, use it for uh, many, many different things. Uh, and so, what the word kusala actually means is the ability to cut into something. And then, then a kusala means that we can't cut into it which means it's unwholesome because the wholesome means that we can cut into it. We can see what it is. We can dissect it. We can diagnose it. The word diagnostic actually comes from the quality of cutting it so that we can open and see it. Gnosis. Diag is the cut and gnosis. Okay. So this is the quality of Kusala. And this is the kind of mind that we want to have is we're now cutting open the kind of thought patterns that we have so that we can choose which thoughts we're going to have and which thoughts we're not going to allow. This is what we mean by applied thought. We can apply the mind and we keep applying it. And in fact, by continuously applying it, that's the same thing as sustaining. So applied and sustained thought This quality of sustained thought of the first jhana is, in fact, step number six of Anapanasati, of the development of the skill of sukha, Mm -hmm. to be able to maintain or sustain that state of sukha is by maintaining the mind in a wholesome state, because when the mind goes back to, to hindrances, then it's lost its uh, sukha. So this is the way we have it. These five items now are to be developed. Each one of them is a skill, but we need the Eightfold Path most specifically to be able to practice these things. And all five of these are actually part of Anapanasati. They are part of the description of the first jhana, and they are also developed through the Eightfold Noble Path and that when we develop it fully, it then becomes the factors of enlightenment. Most specifically, uh, the word mindfulness, which actually means to wake up, mm-hmm. and the quality of investigation. Okay, so that investigation now is ongoing, which means that this is the sustained thought, is the quality of keep watch- watching, keep looking, keep investigating, to make sure that the mind can stay in that state of joy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the joy that we have is certainly good enough, but it is not over the moon, super duper high quality, shaking in our boots kind of joy that happens from time to time. But mm-hmm. we don't want to be in that state most of the time anyway. Maybe occasionally it would be all right. But just being in a state of uh, the kind of joy that arises from uh, the knowledge of a job well done with the attitude of, I can do this. So these qualities of the Eightfold Noble Path of one's right view, 
right sati, right effort, and right attitude is very much a part of the first jhana. The right attitude then is actually the culmination of the uh, the first jhana into this sense of uh, pity, this joy of success. This is what needs to be then not just developed, but maintained. How can we maintain this state? The answer is, is by guarding the mind to make sure that unwholesome thoughts don't come back in. And so, uh, in, in a way, most people think of the first jhana as a very, very high, uh, mystical, uh, out-of-this-world kind of thing that only happens occasionally. Mm-hmm. But, no, it, when, it's, <clears throat> when we're developing it, it actually then becomes more and more common. Mm-hmm. That it's not... Um, <laughs> Let me ask you this. How many times do you go to Times Square? Me? Like mm-hmm. never. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever been to Times Square? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh let us imagine that uh, just for Times Square's sake, um imagine <laughs> that when when you when people go there the first time it's kind of exciting. It's alluring. All of the lights, all of the uh, uh, special stores, and all the things that happened on Times Square. Mm-hmm. But if you worked on Times Square and went there every day, I used to. Only, yeah, now it's lost, <laughs> it's lost its charm. Yeah. Okay, this is actually what we're um, intending to happen then with First Jhana is we settle into it. But it doesn't have that supreme high anymore. But you're still on Times Square. Mm -hmm. You really are kind of at the top of your game when you're in first jhana. Mm -hmm. Knowing that when you get into second jhana, you really are out of the game because you can't even think then. So these higher states have have not a lot of value. Mm-hmm. But we do want to at least go so that if we are in those higher jhanas, that when we come out of it, the intention is to come back into first jhana. So that it's like a safety net or this winds up being the place that we want to rest that now we are calling um, the middle path mm-hmm. to where uh, on one side is excessive sensual pleasure too much of it and on the other side then is hindrances which is the austerities of harming ourselves thinking that by harming ourselves we'll get good results mm-hmm. that that was the original idea behind the uh, doing the self-flagellations and uh, 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 big fish hooks stuck in the body and uh having heavy fruits hanging from them and all of this kind of really weird stuff that they do in India. But the, the, um, the Philippines, they nail each other up to an actual cross with real actual nails. Oh, wow. Why did they do this? They think that it, because of the torture aspect, that it has some value. Mm-hmm. And that one of the things that they thought in the time of the Buddha, this is actually, I think it's in the Sutta number 101, where the Buddha confronts these guys who were now doing what he used to do, which were these austerities. And he confronted them by asking them, why do you do this to yourself? And they say it is to remove the results of the comma of bad actions in the past Mm. that's the way that it looks like that in fact uh if if god's going to beat my ass i better beat it first so that he'll have pity upon me because i already beat my own ass and therefore he's not going to take the effort to do it okay this Mm. is kind and we do that in our culture all the time we say i'm sorry when in fact we're not sorry but apologizing on an easy level is uh kind of 
this idea of if I punish myself and if I feel sorry, then that absolves me of the guilt of what I've done wrong. Mm -hmm. So this is that whole idea of self-flagellation. Well, if you think about it at a very subtle level, that's what we're doing when we're restless. We're almost like trying to pay off a debt that we think we owe. Mm. And possibly the way that we do that is, is that we feel insecure in this moment and we think if we go do something that our feeling of security will come back again, that I've got to go do something. I feel insecure with the door unlocked, so I'm going to have to go lock the door and then I'll feel more secure. So we have this um, affinity and um, delusional stuff that keeps us to go back into hindrances as well as the habits of having built them up. The original program was instinctual, and we do a lot of our behavior instinctually when we're not watching what we're doing. And that the primary, uh, for instance, the, the nesting instinct, the primary advantage of the nesting instinct is herding mentality, that we feel safer in a herd. I think that that's part of the reason why people uh, are wanting to get out for coronavirus is because they feel insecure when they're a home at alone cooped up mm. rather than really enjoying it like so many of the uh, friends of the Dhamma are doing. They just say, wow, what a nice vacation. <laughs> I really enjoy this. But, but instead, this herding mentality uh, wants uh, within each person uh, they, they want to get around others. They feel safe and secure around others, which also means that we have to go along to get along. Whatever the herd wants to do, we've got to go do what the herd is doing. Mm -hmm. These are all instinctual behaviors. In fact, that herding mentality is the main reason why people want, I mean, they look at employment records or uh, we want uh, our unemployment rates to be very low. And everybody buys that, and everybody goes and gets a job, and everybody hates their job, and everybody suffers through it. But we're following that herd mentality of um, the line of if you don't work, you don't eat. In I'm, Thailand, uh, that's not true at all. People quit their jobs easily in Thailand because <laughs> they've got their family back up. I'm I'm uh, I'm getting tired. It's it's a bit late here, so I'm gonna wanna uh, go to bed soon. Okay. All right. Well, let's all wrap this up together. These five factors of this first jhana. Mm -hmm. Watch for them. Note them. Notice them. That you feel joy through the satisfaction of throwing out the hindrances. Okay. That you feel satisfied and secure and safe while you're maintaining that and that uh, you're going to apply the mind to things that you that you know are going to be wholesome and that you're going to sustain that mm -hmm. and keep it going by continuing to monitor what's in the mind so that you can stay in a state of joy Mm -hmm. Anything okay. that grabs you out of your state of joy, be mindful of that so that you can let go of that thing before it drags you out of your state of joy. This okay. is the way to practice, to continue. When, when you find yourself not into that state, get yourself into that state. Practice getting into it. Mm -hmm. And the, the main item of that is sati, to wake up, to keep waking up, to keep waking up, to keep coming back over and over and over again, because it is natural for these hindrances to take over again. Mm -hmm. That's the normal way. Don't feel bad when you catch the hindrances. Feel good because you actually are now waking up. Mm -hmm. okay. That's very dangerous. Most students, they have a hard time when they start to wake up, or actually after they begin to wake up, they think that they should stay woke all the time, and they're not able to do that. So take joy when you catch yourself asleep. 
and wake mm-hmm. up. Aha, I see you. <laughs> I see you, anger. I see you, misery. I see you. And that'll help get us into that state, and then we can sustain it by making sure that the, that the thoughts that we have are wholesome. Now, we haven't really, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the main point is, is for you to do your own cutting and diagnosing, so for you to figure out what is wholesome thoughts for you. Mm-hmm. I can give you lots and lots of examples, but you're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Basically, mm-hmm. it is, aha, uh-huh, I see you. This is also the first noble truth, to see that dukkha. To see that dissatisfaction. Okay. As well as the third noble truth, to see when you are not in dissatisfaction, when in fact you are satisfied, when you are good to go, at least recognize I'm not in suffering right now. Ha uh-huh. ha. All right. <laughs> All right. All That's right. the third noble truth. Start spending some time in third noble truth. Being completely satisfied with how things are. Okay. Uh, I, I will. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, good night. We will see you later. All right. Thank you.